Good morning. Hear, recognize, believe, follow. Let's pray. This is a prayer from Psalm 19, verse 14. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. This is where we're going this morning. We're going to start. I've called them some technicalities because I want to put this pronunciation issue to bed once and for all. <laughs> Every time we start these, uh, a new talk in these series, somebody pronounces it wrongly or claims it's Hebrew. Mentioning no names. Uh, but we're going to do a little bit more than that in the technicalities, okay? Then we're going to have a look at the context of today's um, passage. Look at the parable itself, and then we'll have a look at the explanation. But only one part, because this is quite a difficult uh, section of John's Gospel, because the whole thing runs through on the same theme. So I'm going to try very hard not to tread on Mark Mumford's uh, toes ready for the 21st. So you'll excuse me, I hope, forgive me, if it feels like there's a sudden break. I hope we can make it smooth, but just as a, by way of a warning, Okay. Uh, and then I want to end with a challenge. Uh, how you handle that challenge, whether it's individually or whether you tackle it in small groups, that's completely up to you. But I want to leave you with three or four challenges, depending on how you in interpret them. So let's uh, have a look at this wretched problem of pronunciation. That's what it looks like in Greek. Okay? And you will notice that it's made up almost entirely of vowels, apart from two consonants. There's one consonant, there's the other one. And so it's the vowels which determine how we pronounce it. <laughs> so here we go. The first vowel is epsilon, and it's pronounced like the E, whoops, sorry, I didn't mean to press that one, like the E in met, so it's E. It's short. If you pronounce E long in Greek, it's a different letter altogether. Okay? Uh, omega, that funny W squiggle there, uh, that's pronounced like the O in note. Now, generally speaking, we got that one right over the last few weeks, okay? At the end of the first part. The, uh, the iota is pronounced like the I in pit. It's short, I. All right, not I. Now, this is difficult in English because you very rarely find words which have short vowels at the end. Okay? And the diphthong, did it again? Okay, the combination of epsilon and iota is pronounced like the A in fate. So, all together, ego, a me. A me. Ego, a me. Okay? Right. End. <laughs> Never again. <coughs> There's another problem with this phrase, though, which is, I suppose, a sort of technicality. Grammarians will love it. And that's the use of the pronoun I. The problem is that in Greek, as in Latin, the verb means. I am. 
the pronoun is redundant. You don't need it. It would still say, I am. So why does John do it? And he does it lots of times, not just in the great I am sayings. He does it all over the place. One reason is that God, John's Greek is not very good. Okay? Uh, some of the worst Greek in the New Testament is in Revelation. And if we assume that John is the author of that, then we're, you know, poor old John, he's in big trouble. So why, why did John do that? I mean, for instance, in the story of um, him meeting his disciples on the other side of the lake, and they, them thinking he's a ghost walking on the water, all right, he calls out, Ego aime. It's me. That's how it's translated. Not I am. It's translated, it's me. Okay? Or, sorry, strictly speaking, it is I. All right? <laughs> well, I'm going to suggest to you that I think there are three reasons why John does this. One is a matter of emphasis. Now, Jesus wants to make it clear I am whatever the next phrase is, okay? That's one reason. The second reason, I think, might be that it's an echo of Yahweh. I am. That emphasis, that link to God's declaration of his name. But I think there's another one, and I love this. I love this. Of course, Jesus never said, <laughs> ego, amen. Never passed his lips, because, of course, he spoke Aramaic, not Greek. And there's a problem in Aramaic. There is no verb to be. You cannot say, I am, in Aramaic. So how did they do it? They did it by repeating the pronoun. And in Aramaic, I is Anna. And to say, I am, you say, Anna, Anna. So can you see what John is doing in terms of his emphasis here? This is Jesus, even in Aramaic, saying, I am. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am, as we have it today, the gate. So in this instance, I think John actually got the idiom right. Bless him. This is an Aramaic speaker writing in Greek. Ego, Amy. Anna, Anna. I am. Can you imagine the power of that to the crowds Jesus was speaking to, who only knew Anna, Anna? I am. And where had they heard that before? When Yahweh declared to Moses, my name, Yahweh. Wow. Wow. Some simpler technical problems, okay? Well, one technical problem is that, there we go, we've done that, okay? Second, well, next to last technical problem. It, please, ignore the chapters and verses here. Of course, the chapters and verses are not original. You will find chapters and verses nowhere in the old manuscripts. These were added much later. 
Sometimes I, I wish they just weren't there. They're very good for reference purposes. You can find your way around when you use them, can't you? But for the rest of the time, they actually get in the way. And they get in the way in John especially, because John writes in long passages of discourse and narrative. Not like Mark, where they're nicely chopped up into little bits. Okay? And so if we're not careful, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions can cut us off from the context in which these passages are meant to lie. Now, if we learned anything from Gary uh, the last time we did an I Am, you will know that the context is very important. Okay, well, before we get on to context, <laughs> I want to do this one. I've often heard people say they don't know how this one works. You know, the shepherd and the sheep hearing his voice and, 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 and knowing who it is. And following, but do you know, it's, it's, it's a real thing, this. Completely real. Have you ever seen St. Uh, St. David Attenborough, who never says anything wrong, of course, in that wonderful programme about the emperor penguins in the Antarctic, how the parents go off to find food, leaving thousands of chicks all <coughs> pooing on the ice as fast as they can. <laughs> and they come back and they find their own chick and feed it. They hear its voice. They know who it is. I used to work in my summers when I was 13, 14, 15 on Waybrook Farm out at Sherwin St John. And there was a wonderful old stockman there. He was about 110. And I used to go out with him to call in the herd, 200 cattle. And he, he, oh, he was horrible to me on the first couple of days I was there. David, go, go, well, I won't do it in the accent, but he was a lovely Hampshire man. I don't think he'd had been outside Hampshire all his life. And he said, go and call them in. He said, here's the call. Come, come, come. I thought, can't be that difficult. So I went into the field and yelled at the top of my voice, come, come, come. And of course, they didn't even lift their heads from the grass. <laughs> but he stood <laughs> in the gateway and he hardly raised his voice at all. Come, 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 come. They almost galloped in. Because apart from being milked, of course, they were also going to get some lovely extra food. <laughs> you may know this person. <laughs> this is Nigel. I live in his house. <laughs> he is utterly utterly devoted to my wife, <laughs> whose voice he knows from a hundred yards up the road. And he will jump down off the bread where he is worshipping the sun and come downstairs and stand at the bottom of the stairs and yell at the top of his Siamese voice until she comes through the door. <laughs> Me, he treats with utter disdain. <laughs> totally ignores me. It's real. This animal's hearing the voice. So don't come to this parable thinking this is nonsense. It's not. It really is something that is true and factual. Animals know the voice of the person who looks after them. Okay? Though not the person who pays for his cat food. <laughs> Final technicality, the village sheepfold. You don't often hear this explained, but most towns in Palestine and villages had a communal sheepfold because, of course, sheep were the basis of the, the economy, essentially. 
Uh, and so the sheep would all be collected in this single fold, the flocks of half a dozen owners. And they weren't marked. They weren't kept in separate pens. The only way you could separate them was when the shepherd came to the pen and called his own sheep. And they recognised his voice. And he led them out. And they followed him. That is a real thing. Okay? So when you come to this parable that Jesus told, just think yourself into the knowledge that the people in the crowd had when they listened to him, when they heard what he was saying. Okay? Well, that was longer on, the, on that than um, I sort of intended. But there we go. Not, not, not to worry. Now, let's read chapter 10 of John's Gospel, verses 1 to 10. Okay? Here we go. Truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Sorry, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them all, when he brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the work of strangers, the voice of strangers. And Jesus used this figure of speech with them, this parable, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now the sense of chapter 10 is not always easy to follow, okay? At times, there's a sort of apparent <coughs> mixing of metaphors. Gatekeepers, shepherds, sheep pen. All these things get modelled up in our thinking sometimes. We need context, don't we? Uh, the I am sayings are part of a wider discourse. Wherever they show... I mean, Gary showed us dramatically, didn't he, the last time he spoke, how the context of I am the light was so important that blazing picture of Jerusalem visible from the hills. Now, if you hadn't been told that, you just think, come on, it's, you know, it's a nice, nice saying, I am the light. Well, yeah, I, I know what. But to imagine what it must have been like to come over the hill and see Jerusalem blazing with light must have been astonishing. And that's what the crowd knew Jesus was talking about. They are always part of a wider discourse. So how does all this link together? Why does Jesus use this connection with sheep and shepherds? Well, let's go back to basics. You might be forgiven for thinking in John's Gospel that the sayings, the, the sections of teaching, begin with that verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus uses that 25 times in John's Gospel. But I'm sorry, it ain't true. That's not, they never begin a new section of teaching. John's Gospel is geographic. The discourse and narrative is broken up by where Jesus is. Let me give you some examples. In chapter 6, verse 1, it begins, After this, Jesus went to the other side of Galilee. And chapter 7, verse 1 begins, After this, Jesus went, went about in Galilee. 
And in chapter 10, verse 40, it says he went away again across the Jordan. And each one of those movements to a new area begins a new section of teaching. So our chapter 10, verses 1 to 10, forms part of the discourse which starts in chapter 7, verse 1, and goes all the way through, almost to the end of chapter 10. And if we miss that context, we miss the meaning of this parable. In fact, it even links back into chapter 6. So we have to assume that chapters 10, 1 to 10, resumes and develops thoughts that are already present in chapter 7, verse 1 onwards, and even in 6. And especially, I love that, this coming story, the story of the blind man in chapter 9. Now that story brings together, in the story of the blind man, one key question that has been opened up throughout chapters 6, 7, 8 and 9, and it's this. Is Jesus from God or not? This is what chapter 6, verses 41 to 42 says. The Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Chapter 9, verse 29. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Chapter 7, verses 40 to 42. Some in the crowd said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some asked, Surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem? Little did they know. Chapter 9, verses 30, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had driven him, that's the blind man, uh, out. They had, they had um, essentially excommunicated this poor blind man. Uh, Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found, Jesus went to look for this man after he'd been driven out by the Pharisees. And he said to the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? And I, I just love the blind man's honesty. Uh, he answered, and who is he, sir? <laughs> Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, now I love the irony in these words. He's talking to a man who was blind. And Jesus says, you have seen him. And the one who speaks to you is he. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now, this question, is Jesus from God or not, was so important to the Pharisees and the crowds who were listening. Okay. If he's not from God then what do we do from him, with him? They've been trying for three or four chapters to arrest him and hadn't been successful. So if, if he's not from God, what do we do with him? But if he is from God, what do we do with us? Let me reread the parable to you. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. 
The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. That's the parable. And the hearers do not understand. <laughs> now, actually, that's not unusual in the case of Jesus' parables. Do you remember the parable of the sower in Mark? Jesus had to sit down with his disciples and s explain it stage by stage before they got the grip of what he was saying. Same problem here. They didn't understand. So, Jesus starts to unpack the meaning of this parable. And he does it in three stages one of which we're going to look at this morning, one of which I'm certain Mark will be looking at on the 21st, and possibly the third one as well, okay? And now if we don't pay attention to these, expl these explanations that Jesus gives, we miss the point of the parable. So the first layer of this explanation is verses 7 to 10. And this is it. Here we go. So again Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep, and all who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Says it twice. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. All clear? So we've seen what prompted the parable. Is Jesus from God or not? And we've just heard Jesus' first part of the explan explanation. But why does Jesus use this image, sheep and shepherd, to deal with this question, is Jesus God or not? What's the connection between that great theological question, because that's what it is, your eternity depends on the answer that you give. No pressure. The great theological question and sheep. Well, the image of the shepherd and the sheep would have been very well known to those who were listening to him. They would have known it from their own scriptures. The picture is of a king and his people, and it comes from Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, Mortal, prophesy. Wow, I wish God was as clear as that sometimes these days. There we go. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Are you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves? Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back 
the strayed, you have not sought the lost, but with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And scattered they became food for all wild animals. My sheep were, my sheep were scattered, says the Lord. Uh, they wandered over the, all the mountains and every, every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with no one to search or seek for, for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for the wild animals, since there is no shepherd and because my shepherds have not... It goes on, doesn't it? Have not, it's quite important. Have not searched for my sheep but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding, to their not feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep. As shepherds, Seek out their flock when they are among their scattered sheep. So I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them in from the countries and I will bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the watercourses and in all the inhabited parts of it. I will feed them good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. They shall lie down in good grazing land. They shall feed on rich pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them to lie down, says the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them with justice. We know this image, don't we? Psalm 23 of course. And I think as often happens, we skip past verses 1 to 10 and go straight to verse 11, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Because it's so straightforward, isn't it? In verses 1 to 5, Jesus doesn't actually mention himself directly seems to be teaching in a sort of abstract somehow about the difference between the shepherd and the false shepherds. Now, who is he referring to, these false shepherds? They're characterised as thieves and brigands or thieves and bandits. Judas is called this in John 12.6, Barabbas in John 18.40. Who are they? Who's Jesus referring to? He's referring to the leaders who emerged in Jesus' own time. And there were two sorts. There were the revolutionaries who advocated violent confrontation with the imperial power. This is hinted at in chapter 6, verse 15, where John says, when Jesus realised that they, that's the crowd, were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Nothing could have challenged Roman power more deeply than to say, we've just made somebody else king. The second group were the collaborators and quislings. Herod and the high priests, who relied on Roman power to maintain their own. 
Can you see where Jesus is heading with this? How then will God's true anointed king become recognized when he comes? Many had turned up in Jerusalem at this period of time, offering themselves as leaders like Barabbas. But there is only one who comes by the way that God has appointed and chosen and has the right to claim that kingship. And the sign of the king is this. It is a heartfelt response. His people hear him, recognize him, and follow him. The blind man again. John 9, verses 30 to 33. Remember he has just been through a grueling interrogation two, in fact, by the Pharisees. And this is his concluding statement. The blind man says this. Here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to the one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So the point of this parable is this. Jesus is really saying, this is what I am doing. Anna, Anna. This is what I am doing. This is what gives substance to my claim that I am from God, Israel's true king. People are hearing. People are recognizing and following. This is the sign that God has sent me. So surrounded by a sea of blank faces when he tells them the parable, Jesus comes on to the explanation of he is the gate This is a Penwith gate. Okay, you'll only find them in deep west Cornwall. But it looks familiar, doesn't it? That sort of barred metal gate. But this was actually designed in the 19th century by a local Cornish blacksmith. And the reason it's special to Penwith is that there's no welding in it. It's all done with bolts. And they have these little curlicues on the top. And sometimes they have one in the middle as well. I like them. We spot them as we go around Cornwall, well, the southwest, anyway. And there's this one I found in a car park. You can't open it. Uh, it's completely rotten, and it leads absolutely nowhere. <laughs> this is the oldest door in England. The door itself is 800 years old. The wood from which it was made is probably over 1,000 years old. It was dated by dendrochronology to having been part of a tree that was felled in Essex in about the year between 1000 and 1050. What's the one thing all these gates have in common? Well, there is only one, and that is that they fill a gap. They fill a gap. 
That's all a gate is, really, a gap in a boundary wall. And the gate lets you pass through the boundary. Now, in many Middle Eastern environments, the gate to a sheepfold was just that, a gap in the wall. There was no physical barrier as such, other than the shepherd himself. At night, the shepherd lies in the gateway, stops the sheep going out and the predators coming in. He says the shepherd keeps the sheep safe by watching over their going out and their coming in. This is not a gate through which you pass once into some sort of heavenly sheepfold and you never get out again. It says he watches over their comings and their goings. This is life. This is every day. This is not the end. This is experience. And the king, the king watches over his sheep, coming and going. I bet there were many in the crowd for whom Psalm 121 sprang to mind. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and from evermore. The Lord will keep you. The chief refuge, you see, has no business looking to his own interests like the false shepherds. His priority is his <coughs> sheep. Jesus is saying simply, find a king like that and you have found God's anointed one. From God, prophet, Messiah, son of man. His commitment to his sheep is utter. And then we have the promise, tucked on the end, okay? Life, full life, <coughs> full to overflowing. Wow. What does that mean to a sheep? Grass and somewhere to go, asleep, go to sleep without being preyed on, I suspect. Maybe a bit more for you, I don't know. Here we go. The challenge. I want to suggest to you that the first three are relatively easy. You can hear, I mean you, most of you, you sit there most Sunday mornings and you listen. Do you hear? And in hearing, do you recognize the Christ? Do you see the King? We sang one song this morning, didn't we, about God being good. And it breaks me every time. Because, of course, good means righteous. It doesn't mean kind in these circumstances. It means righteous. And I stood just about there, and I felt as though I was alone. Every time this happens, when this song is sung. Alone before a God who is utterly righteous. And I stood there in my rags. And what could I do but give up? Because it's almost as if the Christ himself, the great shepherd, got off the throne 
and cloaked me in his righteousness. And so I could stand up again and be present with the righteous God. Recognize who he is. And then believe. Throw off that measure of doubt. I carry a measure of doubt with me all the time. Any of you who know me will know that to be, to be the case. God and I are in discussion almost all the time. One way or another. But I, I do believe. I do believe. And in a way, all those three are easy. But the challenge is, okay, it's fine. You've heard, you recognize who he is, and you believe. The challenge is, follow. The first three happen here and here. All right? The fourth one happens here. Follow in his footsteps. Follow in his works. Follow in his love for the cosmos. Second challenge. Who are your thieves and brigands? Who are stealing from you the things that will get in the way of your coming and going? Might not be people. It might be experiences you've had. It might be false beliefs, false teaching. I don't know. I can't speak for you. But if you're anything like me, and I guess you probably are, then there will be thieves and brigands who steal from you that which God has provided. You don't have to be subject to them. The true king is the gatekeeper, not the thieves and brigands who jump the wall and prey on you. Here's the last challenge. What is your abundant life? Let me tell you two things, which I'm pretty certain it is not. <coughs> and one of them, funnily enough, has already been mentioned this morning. And that is, your life is not full just because you're busy. Okay? Just because you're doing lots of stuff. In fact, the stuff may well be an excuse for not having a full life. And the other thing is that it's not is stuff. If your life is just full of stuff, then it's emptier than it ever was before. So I want to challenge you to think carefully about what your abundant life really is. Now you can do that by yourselves, you can do that in your small groups. Challenge yourselves to hear, recognize, believe, and follow. Ask yourself who the thieves and brigands are. And finally, Ask God what abundant life means for you. Thank you.